You can laugh all you want, but it's the way it is. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we have been coming through uh, each book of the Bible kind of in a unique way. We've been talking about and laying out how that each book really portrays the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I want to spend the time, <clears throat> giving since we're doing it, giving you all the key areas. There's a lot of things that we've learned coming through these books. I, I want to do a, a, I don't want to do just a haphazard thing where I just blow through it. I think there's, uh, there's lots of things, the high points we can hit that I think are going to help you where you're at right now. Believe me, there's still plenty of stuff we could come back and teach each book again and spend literally the rest of our lives doing it. But we learned when we got into the book of Corinthians that here's a church that, that has all kinds of issues. And, and they parallel uh, the problems they have. They parallel the problems that we find in churches today. And uh, the main issue with this church is the main issue that most churches have and most Christians have, and it becomes the, how Christ is portrayed in this book, and that is the fact that Christ as Lord. Christ being the Lord of our lives. Christ being the centerpiece in our lives that everything that we do, all the relationships that we have, kind of revolve around that aspect. And uh, we have... We have come through this, and we begin to see as we come through chapter 10. One of the things that I want you to see here is we begin to get a glimpse at the underlying reason why the church of Corinth had the problems that they had. And yet, at the same time, what I want you to do today is what I ask you to do every week is make the parallels. Make the association between Israel's issues, or excuse me, the, the uh, first church at Corinth's issues to our issues. We'll talk about the nation of Israel, how it plays in here in a moment. And they never grew past a certain point. Why is it that God's people legitimately get saved? I believe they begin a process, just like the people at the church of Corinth, but they never get to a point where they ever become all that God wants them to be. In most cases, they never come to any point at all. And they just kind of get lost in, in everything like, the, like uh, the church at Corinth did. And through the process of time, we saw that it caused problems, didn't it? And it's going to cause problems in our lives if we don't at some point begin to do what the Word of God says. Later, this church is salvaged by Paul. Paul comes back, he writes basically 1 Corinthians to, to really take them to task, so to speak, chapter by chapter. Then he writes the book of 2 Corinthians to try to help them get restored. And this is a great chapter for, for us, for you and for me, today as we really, if we really want to know your Bible and know God and to have a relationship. Let me ask you a question. When we go down to the City Union Mission, we go down there every third Sunday of the month. And so this is not a question that will only affect a few of you because most of you come down. Many times we rival their attendance. They had to feed us. You know, we, we, gotta, we come down in mass. What is their favorite song? Raise your hand. What is their favorite song they like to sing? Got one over here, one over here, one back here. Missy, what is their favorite song? Victory in Jesus. Did you ever stop and analyze why that, and when you talk about that, I mean, you can, you can sing whatever you want to sing down there, but when you say victory in Jesus, everybody gets a hymnal, everybody gets excited. Have you ever analyzed why that is? I'll tell you why that is. Because those men so desperately 
want that victory in Jesus. That song represents something for them that for most of them is out of their reach at this point in their life. To sing about it is an, is an exhilarating thing. To think that here they are, many of them have lost their families, lost their jobs, lost everything in society, and now are relegated to living in a city union mission that begins to restart their lives. And the reason why that song is absolutely so uh, important to them is because that's what they so desperately desire is the victory that comes from a life with Christ. And yet, I make no bones about it. That was certainly not a, in no way, shape, or form, a reflection on those dear men down at the City Union Mission. Because I'll tell you what, most of them, even in the dire situation they're in, have a better chance of getting the victory in Jesus than most of you do sitting in here today. You know why that is? Because you've not hit bottom yet. You've not come to the place in your life where you've lost everything to understand. And, and, you know, and that is so true in life. Sometimes you have to lose something to understand how valuable it was. And that's where these men are at, and, and, and that's where God's people uh, are at today. And you should, you should want that victory in Jesus. You should pursue that victory in Jesus. Your life and everything that you do and everything that you put into your life, every relationship, every circumstance, had to be geared toward you attaining that victory in Jesus. Well, I'm going to talk about that today in light of the church at Corinth. And I'm going to show you probably in chapter 10 one of the greatest concepts that you'll ever get a hold of to help you get and understand the victory in Jesus that we all need and so desperately uh, desire. Last week, I, I talked to you about our last Bible basics, and I taught you a great concept in Bible basics. We talked about it last week, the idea of contrast, how God, who automatically divides things out, then takes the two things that he divides and makes a contrast, light versus darkness, heaven versus hell, and the old nature versus the new nature. And contrast is, is, is a great thing. You know, if you would go out and look at the moon through a telescope, you would think that the best time to look at the moon is when it's full. And so you get your telescope out there, you know, and there's the big full moon up there, and you'll focus it on there, and suddenly you'll look at it, and, and you will, if you have any idea of the moon at all, you will be greatly disappointed because the moon is so bright at that point that you really can't see much detail. Now, when you go out and you see the moon at about first quarter or last quarter, where it's, you have that dark line coming down through it, that line is called the terminator. And it terminates the light from the darkness. In other words, it serves as a contrast. You look at the moon when it's in first phase or second phase, or at least in one of its phases, and obviously the more it goes into phases, the more you can see. But my point is, when you get to the first phase of the moon or the second phase of the moon, you look at that moon, it will absolutely knock you out of your socks, the, the detail that you see. Do you know why? Because the Terminator, not Arden Schwarzenegger, the real Terminator on the moon, the contrast between light and darkness brings out all of the details. That's what God does in the Bible. He teaches us in a great way by contrast. 
contrasting the things that are right versus the things that are wrong. The things of darkness versus the things of light. And, you know, everything that, uh, everything that you need to survive and grow uh, in your Christian life, in your relationship with God, is based on what you get out of the Bible and how you recognize what the Bible is. Years ago, I heard a great sermon, and I've used this message many, many times. It's in my Bible. I've given it to you. I heard a guy preach a message on the Bible uh, being a survival kit for Christians. And he started out and told the story how that he was in the Air Force and they had to ditch in the ocean and they got out safely, got into uh, some nice big life rafts that they had in there. And he said, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was a fairly tolerable situation. They were in there for two days before they found them. But he said, we had, the first thing that we did before we ever took off is check everything in the plane. And we always made sure that we had our survival gear. We had everything that we needed in case we had to ditch at sea. And in this case, they had to ditch at sea. And it was kind of a, a, of a no-brainer experience simply because they had everything that they needed to survive. You know the Bible t- talks about the nation of Israel. And when they start going on their wilderness journey, when they come out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, you know that's a great picture of your life and my life. They got saved by the blood as a nation in Exodus chapter 12 when they put the blood on the door. The Bible says then that they entered into a period of land over there in the Middle East called the wilderness of sin. And that wilderness of sin was an absolute desolate place. This is where they could find no water. This is where they could find no food. This is where that basically they had to rely on God to sustain them at this point every inch of the way. You know what that represents for you and for me? It represents that the day you and I got saved, the day that was our exodus in our life when God put the blood on the door and and passed over you and me and saved us, at that point, as a child of God, you entered into the wilderness of sin. You know what that wilderness of sin represents? It represents the world system. There's nothing now as a child of God that would sustain you in this world, just as there was nothing that would sustain them. There was no water. There was no food. There was nothing for them. And when you get saved, the things of this world will simply not do it for you anymore. Not that they did it for you in the first place. But it's nothing, this world has nothing for you. And you have to now, like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you have to rely on the sustaining power of God of giving you everything you need to survive in the wilderness of sin. Even though we live in Kansas City with a million restaurants and skyscrapers and, and, and malls and all of those things, as far spiritually speaking, that you and I are concerned if you're saved this morning, there's nothing in this world that will satisfy you. You have to get sustained by the supernatural things that God gives you. And so this guy took that and he preached about the Bible being our survival kit. And he talked about the things that if you were... Uh, in a survival mode, survivor man, so to speak, like you see on TV. He says the first thing you need is water, and you find that in John chapter 4, likened to the Word of God. He said you'd have to have something to eat, so the Bible's likened to meat in Hebrews chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible's likened to milk. 
In Psalms 119, 105, the Bible is likened to light. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, the, the, the Word of God is likened to fire. In Psalm 78, 24, the Word of God is likened to vegetables. In Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2, it's likened to apples. In Psalms 119, verse 103, it's likened to honey. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, it's likened to hammer and nails. Exodus chapter 16 and Luke 4, 4, it's likened to bread. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it's likened to a sword. Everything you need. You have stuff to sustain you. you if you've got a hammer and nails, and, and you can build just about anything you want, you've got a sword to protect yourself. And that was a great lesson that I learned of how the Bible is to sustain me. And the greatest single teaching that comes out of chapter 10 that we're going to find, and I want you to focus on this this morning, is that the Bible is everything that you need. It contains everything for you to survive in the wilderness of sin. The problem is we don't know how to use the Bible. That's the problem. And I want to use this chapter today to show you some things about contrast. I want to take this chapter and show you some things that how that, that you can really make this Bible work for you. You know, I always tell you, I always tell you that we should learn from our mistakes. And that's true. You know, we all make mistakes. There's nobody that is mistake-free. We like to fancy ourselves sometimes that maybe we are, but in reality, that's not true. And I always tell you that if there's nothing wrong with making mistakes as long as we learn from mistakes, and that's true. Because if you don't learn from them, then you just keeping, keep on making the same mistakes over and over again. And how many times have we seen that? I've dealt with people in my life over the years that just continually go through one bad situation after another in everything in their life. And the, the simple answer is, when you look at it, is the fact that they have just never learned from their mistakes. They refuse to stop and sit down and say, okay, what did I do wrong? And contrast it with something the Bible says that you should do right. It's just that simple. But I'll tell you one that's even better than that. It's in the Bible. And that is, not only should you learn from your own mistakes, but if you can ever get to the place in the Word of God... We use the Bible to learn from the mistakes of others and the mistakes that they make in the Bible. Not only will you learn from your own personal mistakes, but in many cases you'll learn not to make those mistakes in the first place. And obviously, the best life is, a, is as close to a mistake life uh, we can have. And uh, so you learn through the mistakes of others. And in this chapter, we have a great study on what the Bible calls in samples and examples found in the Old Testament scriptures. And this is how the church of Corinth, this was their basic fundamental problem. They never learned this. This is why Paul was talking to them, trying to get them to use their Bible the way God intended it. You know, I don't know of an issue. I don't know of a sin. I don't know of anything that a man can get into on planet earth that is not found in the Bible. And uh, it's laid out in such a fashion that it's so easy to follow. You realize that God takes every problem that a man gets into or a woman gets into. God takes every issue that man falls into. And if you're paying attention, the Bible teaches you three aspects about that. First of all, the Bible shows you how they got into it. The second thing the Bible shows is the consequences of them getting into it. And then the third thing 
and how they got out of it or how they did not get out of it. You know, we talk about the Bible being the book of life. And many times when we use that phrase, we use it in the sense, and rightly so, that we got our eternal life from it, so it's the book of life. But I'm going to tell you something. The Bible is also a book of life on planet Earth. And if you want to have the victory in Jesus, if you want to get the victory that the church at Corinth never got to, if you want to grasp the concepts of, that are going to keep you uh, in, 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 in your relationship with the Lord, then it's understanding what the church of Corinth did not do and then see the contrast of what Paul tells them of what not only they should do with the Bible, but what we should do with the Bible. And that's the format of knowing how to use your Bible in a personal way. Bible talks about a personal holiness. Most of God's people don't even understand what that means. Well, doing what I'm going to show you today will help you not only have a personal holiness, but maintain a personal holiness in your wilderness of sin journey. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. That's just a punchline today. That's talking points. That's something that we use for filler in a relation, in a sermon that, that, that most of God's people can't grasp. And yet, the church of Corinth had the same issue. They're a church. They've got Bibles. They've got following things, that, but they are so far from where God is at. And from all I can tell in the, in the first Corinthians, there's not one person in there who even has a personal relationship with Christ in the sense. They're saved, but I'm not talking about just being saved. I'm talking about the victory that comes from a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ that most of God's people, and certainly the church at Corinth, did not have, that Paul's trying to give them through the great study on contract. Well, you've heard me say it many times, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for corruption, for instruction in righteousness. you heard me say it many, many times. It's the same format. The Bible does four things for you. First thing it says is doctrine. Doctrine is what's right. So the Bible, first of all, shows you what's right. Second thing it says is reproof. The Bible shows you what's wrong. There's your contrast. Then the third thing is, is correction. The Bible shows you how to fix it. And then the fourth thing is instructions in righteousness. The Bible shows you how to keep it fixed. That's how you use your Bible. But you have to do that as he's laying out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because it's showing us that you do this by contrast. Taking the sins and the mistakes that they've made in the Bible through the Old Testament and the New Testament for us. They didn't have the New Testament then, but we do. And then learn through these three concepts to keep from making the same mistakes. Now, folks, that's how you keep yourself from sin. That's how you keep yourself in a walk with the Lord, victory in the Lord Jesus Christ that we talk about. And you know, I don't know why that's so hard for people. You see it all the time in everything we do in life. You see it on NBC, CBS. You read the newspaper every day. You see the 6 o'clock news. Why? You know what? Last week, a tragedy took place. Uh, I think it was 4th of July morning, about 8.30 on 435 and 63rd Street. Two people were driving down the road, just going wherever they were going. Some drunk crossed the other line and hit them head on and, and killed both of them. And when you read that in the paper, you know what that does? That not only makes you feel bad for the people that got killed, but it makes you just a little leery of, of paying more attention when you're driving. You not only got to pay attention to what's going on on either side and behind you, my goodness, now you got to look at the other car coming down the other lane 
and going to hit you head on. It serves as a warning. Now, that doesn't mean you don't drive anymore, does it? No, but it means that it's a warning to you. You see what happened to somebody else, and then you, you apply it to yourself. I read in the paper last week where, you know, they, they set up DWI checkpoints. There are like 20 of them across the city. And they got like some 40 people. You know what a DWI checkpoint is. You drive up and they kind of find out if you're drinking or not. And then they get you off the road. And they talked about the 20 places in this city they've set those up. Now, you read that. If I was a drinking type, if I was a man who drank, you know what I'd do? I'd take that seriously and I'd try to plot those on a map so I went home another way. I mean, it, it gives you a warning. It tells you that somebody is out there looking for you and they're going to catch you. And that's a, that's a, great, that's a great warning. I, I, I read in a paper a couple of weeks ago that Mexico was the kidnapped center of the world right now. You realize that about 35 to 40 people disappear in Mexico a month? You realize that they're targeting Americans in Mexico much worse than they are in the Middle East countries? With all the drug wars and the drug cartels and all the things that are going on, the State Department will tell you, think twice about going to Mexico. I read in the paper, you know, that, that uh, Mexico is a, is a terrible place and all kinds of people are being killed down there and they're targeting Americans and, they're, and they're tr people are getting killed. And, you know, do you actually think that I'm going to book plans to go on my vacation to Atlantic City? I mean, to Mexico? I am going to Atlantic City. It's where I'm going. You learn from what's going on around you out of people's mistakes. Hey, when I read that 35 people last month made the wrong choice to go to Mexico and wound up dead or kidnapped, I'm not going to be number one on the next month's hit parade, if you know what I mean. You will get warnings by that. Warnings. They're coming out now with, with more graphic warnings on cigarette packs. And, you know, the Surgeon General back in the 70s, you know, they wanted to cut down smoking because smoking causes cancer and all of those things. So they put Surgeon General's warning on it. That did nothing. Now they're going to put graphic pictures on. Every time you take out a cigarette, you're going to see a guy whose jaw's gone. <laughs> you're going to see some guy who's emaciated with cancer because they smoked. And, you know, it, it's the stupidest thing in the world. But, you, you know, you'd think if you'd look at that, every time you'd put one of those in your mouth and you saw some guy that his half jaw's gone because of the cigarette smoke and throat cancer, you'd think that was something what you do. No, 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 no. Hey, my dad died of lung cancer when I was 19 years old. My dad grew up smoking cigarettes. He was born in a log cabin he, 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 back in Maryland, and, and he probably started smoking when he was three years old. He smoked at least four or six packs a day. When I was in the Army and I got a call from my mom that he had been diagnosed with lung cancer, they went in and took out half his lung uh, and, and took out all kinds of parts of him that had cancer. He was cut from one end to the other, going around with half a lung. And the uh, doctor told him that, uh, you know, he, he had to be careful and they didn't get all of the cancer. You know what we used to catch him doing? Now, he had a lung removed and had half a lung. He was gutted for look like a fish. And my mom and I would catch him going down the garage to have another smoke. What are you going to do with that? I mean, that's just the way that it is. And I remember how, you know, they used to have cigarette ads. It was always, they changed that. Can't have them anymore. You know, when I was in the Army, 
You know what the favorite brand of cigarettes was? How many? Who, who see if they remember what it was? Remember what it was? Lucky Strikes for you. Camels? You must be back in the Civil War. Where was it? Marlboro. When I was in, it was Marlboro's. Yeah, Lucky Strikes probably for the officers. <laughs> they have it today, sir. Yeah. Okay, well, Marines are tough. They hate those things. Marlboro's. Do you know why that the number one choice was Marlboro's? It was because of the commercial. Remember? Some of you are too young to remember. The, the thing was, come to where the flavor, it had this real tough-looking cowboy riding out on the range with 10,000 cattle. And he's he sitting on a horse like we all daydream about doing, you know, real men. And he's smoking a Marlboro, and then a big sign on it, come to where the flavor is. Now, how stupid is that? You ever been around 10,000 cattle? Come to where the flavor is? They got everybody hooked on it. And so, you know, now they're going to try to reverse that. And you would think when they put those packages on there or some guy emaciated with cancer, you'd do something. But no, it won't. It won't at all. But these things ought to serve as warnings for us in everything in life. And then we look at that and we, we take caution in that. I'll tell you another one. Let's have a swim party this afternoon. You take all the kids. The Missouri River has overflown its banks. And right down here, what used to be a park is a great water thing that they can play in. Don't worry about the signs that say contaminated water. They don't know what they're talking about. Don't worry about that that water is soaked down into graveyards and with all the decomposing flesh. Don't worry about the fact that it's run through sewage plants and everybody's bathrooms and everything down through there. Don't worry about that. Do you realize there's actually parents that are allowing their kids to go in and have a swim day and that kind of stuff? You got one cut someplace on your body, you got permanent infant infection. You'd think we'd learn. No, 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 no. We don't learn. There are signs everywhere you go. Contaminated water. Do not swim. Do not drink. Do not wash. Do not get within 50 feet. It glows at night. <laughs> Bible does the same thing. And just like in life, we hear those things, and this is why with you with common sense, they're not going to let your kids swim in that. This is why with you with common sense, you're going to try to get your kids to stay away from cigarettes and alcohol. With common sense, you're going to, you're going to look at things like that, and, and, you know, and that's what we do. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, first 13 verses today, and I'm going to show you how to use your Bible in a personal way. I'm going to show you how to keep your walk with God and not lose it by contrast of going back and looking at the mistakes that others made in the Bible and make the parallel. My mother asked me a question years and years ago when I got back into the Bible. And my mom had a limited understanding of the Word of God, but she asked me this question. And it was a good question. She asked me one time, how come the Bible, because people at work, and you hear this too, people will tell you how the Bible is such a dirty book that it, 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 it is explicit with sin. I've heard people even equate the Bible to a, a pornographic book that is explicit in its sin. Do you know why the Bible is so explicit in the things that, that uh, we call sin? To teach you the consequences, to teach you how a man falls into it, the consequences of it, and then to teach you to avoid it. That's more than Larry Flint had in mind when he puts out his stuff. You don't even know who Larry Flynn is. Okay, well, it's okay. No big deal. Some of you do. 
Maybe you're just afraid to let you know that you do. Anyway, let's read it. Chapter 10, verse. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant of how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And, all were, and, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, there's the first one, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be I idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Let us, uh, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now here's your second verse. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but yet such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, Father, help us today to come to your word. We love you. Give us those things that we need today. Help us see the great parallels that the church at Corinth could not see. Help us look and look into the Bible and see how that, Lord, the, the record of men's failures, their successes, and the issues of their life and the things that they struggle with are our same issues. And if we can learn by their mistakes and then apply them to our lives through the Bible, that we will never make those same mistakes. Our mistakes will be kept to a minimum. And Father, we would never lose that relationship that we have with you. Thank you today for all that you do now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the last part of that verse in verse 13. And it says, There is no temptation taken you but as such as common to man. Now, that's the first thing I want you to see. My first thing I want to, statement, make, to make a statement to you is that we are all in the same boat. Human nature is always the same. There are no new tricks of the devils that he's using today that he did not use back in the Old Testament. The same tricks that he uses from Genesis chapter 1 or true right up through Revelation chapter 22. You know, we, you know what our biggest problem is? Every one of us have this problem. Our biggest problem is in our human spirit, we think that we are excluded from this. We take the position, not me. It can't happen to me. It won't happen to me. We fall into the not me syndrome of life. And uh, I remember when I worked down in Miami County a number of years ago, uh, uh, there was a, uh, every, every spring when they were getting ready for spring break, they'd lose two or three teenagers. And what they would do, because I was all around the city of Paola and all around those places, you know, I, I got tied in with a lot of the good old boys down there in the street department and places like that. And, uh, and, and it, was, it, it was always the talk of the town. 
What would they do back there? They do what they call hill jumping. If they would get out on a country road, and there's plenty of them out there, they get three or four teenagers in a car, they get going about 80 miles an hour, and then hit a hill and actually come off the pavement for 40, 50, 60 feet, crash down, and, and you know, and, and that to them was, was a big deal. And what obviously would happen is, is the fact that they, they, they would get airborne and lose control with a car, and every, every, every spring there was two or three kids killed. I talked to a state trooper one time, and you know, it was just lamenting the fact that that was a tragedy. And he said, yeah, it was, he says, but it happens every year. And he said, you know what? He says, these kids see their friends killed every year. We could go to the graveyard, and there'd be tombstone after tombstone where they put little baseballs on them. They put bottles of beer on it. They put everything there, stuffed animals and everything, but the kids never get it because everybody thinks that it'll never happen to them. And that's where we're at. And that's the first thing, big thing we need to get over. I, I, a tragedy this week that you're all probably fresh in your mind is that little gal that was killed out on 470 at Woods Chapel Road. Uh, they were going out for a 4th of July picnic, and uh, they were in a pickup truck. And some stuff blew off the pickup truck, and the gal went out in the road to, to uh, pick up the stuff off the thing, and a car came over the thing and killed her instantly. Those things are tragedies. I read, you know, and I follow those up. I, I, I pray for those kind of situations. And I, I read, and my heart breaks many times. I, uh, the father, a statement by the father said that, that his daughter was headstrong, goal-orientated, you know, uh, refused to comply with anybody. You know, she, she'd try anything once, and if it didn't work out for her, then she'd try it again. And I guarantee you, and I don't know the whole depth of the story, but I guarantee you, that little girl ran onto that freeway picking that stuff up because teenagers think, many of you think, and from her father it seemed that she thought that it would happen to somebody else, but it would never happen to her. And that's just not true. It happens to all of us. And temptation happens to all of us. There's nobody iron made of iron in Christianity. All of our feet are feet of clay. And yet the Bible says there is no temptation taken you, but just such as common to man. And this attitude that, that you won't fall, that somebody else will fall, we see it all the time where people lose their lives because they think they can beat the odds. You and I won't beat the odds. It's foolish to even think that. But yet verse 13 says, God is faithful, that when you are tempted, that he won't, one, suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, that escape route is found in the Bible. And it's found in the Bible by learning by the mistakes of others and then looking and studying, one, how they got into that mess so you can avoid it. Two, the consequences of getting into it so you can say, my God, I don't want that happening to me. And then how they got back to God or how they did not get back to God because many of them didn't. And the two key words in this chapter uh, before we get into some of these things and look at it is those two words that I told you. The first one is the word example. Now an example is something that you do. And then the next word is an example. An example is not something that you do but an example is what you are. And those two key words are very important. And what Paul tries to get this church to do is basically the exact same thing I try to get this church to do. 
to go back through the Bible, in this case the Old Testament, and learn the cause and effect of not following the Lord and learn from the mistakes so you and I don't have to make the same mistakes. You know, character studies in the Bible are a great study. I, I think it's one of the greatest ways you can study the Bible. I put books back in the bookstore, that book, uh, All the Men in the Bible, All the Women in the Bible, great character studies. Uh, I can't think of a better book than Arthur W. Pink's Gleaning in Genesis. Incredible character studies. His Gleanings in Exodus, incredible stuff. And it's that kind of stuff that you get that really helps you. He wrote one on the life of David that is just absolutely some of the greatest material. And when he uses the word gleanings in Genesis, that's exactly what he's doing. He's gleaning the character studies, the good and the bad that we might learn. Now, that's some great stuff that you need to build into your life in town, time. Now, look at verse 1. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant of how uh, all, that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. First thing he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. We've talked about this before, but there's many new people here. There's seven things in the Bible that you're told not to be ignorant of. Those seven things are key things. This is just one of them. Those seven things are the seven things that the Bible tells you that as a child of God, we are not to be ignorant of. And yet, if I would lay those seven out today, which we've done on Thursday night many times, you know what we'd find? We'd find that most of God's people are totally ignorant of what these seven are. And there begins our problem. Now, I want you to see down here in verse 2, uh, verse, end of 1 and 2. He says, not to be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized under Moses in the cloud and the sea. And uh, verse 1 and 2, we talked about the crossing of the Red Sea. And there's a lot of things that you learn about your own relationship by going back and understanding what he calls the baptism of Moses. And again, there's seven distinct baptisms in the Bible. He says in verse 3 and 4, that they, they had spiritual meat. That'll be Exodus chapter 16. That's the manna. Remember that supernatural food that God gave them in the wilderness of sin? Exodus chapter 16. He says in, verse, uh, in Exodus, uh, in the same verse, water out of the rock and tells you that rock was Christ. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 17 where they don't have any water. And Moses smites the rock and the water comes out. The next thing he says is in verse 7, how they fell into idolatry. This would be Exodus chapter 32. That they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And they simply forgot God and who he was. He says the next thing in verse 8 and 9, fornication, tempting Christ. In one day, 23,000 died. That'd be Numbers chapter 21 down there in Baal Peor. Then he says in, in verse 10 uh, that they murmured against Moses and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. You see, all these things are found in the Bible in the Old Testament. And then he tells us in verse 6 and verse 11 that these were for our examples and our examples. And then the Bible says that they were written for our admonition. Our admonition upon whom the end of the world come. Well, that pretty much solves that problem, who it's written to. It's written to you and me. Because we're standing in a day and age when the end of the world of Christ's return is, is imminent. We're right here. And he tells us that these things were for our examples and our examples and for our 
admonition. Now, an admonition is a very strong warning. It would like the sign that would be up at the contaminated water. It would be like the, somebody telling you, don't go here, don't do this. That's what it's like. It's many, many kids, the reason why they get into the problems they get into is because they don't heed the admonition of their parents. And that's why God's people get into the problems they get into because we don't heed the admonition. And the key verse is in verse 12 as far as I'm concerned. He says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. He says, take heed. Don't get into that syndrome where you think you're going to beat the system because you're not. Don't get in that syndrome that you think that it applies to everybody else but not you. It won't. And he tells you very clearly that you ought to take heed because if you think you're standing and these things don't apply to you, that's when you're going to fall. Now, the key to success of maintaining a walk with God in this world that we live in, this wilderness of sin, uh, is your personal relationship, not just with the Lord Jesus Christ, but with the Word of God, the Bible. And we talked about learning by contrast through the mistakes of others, how you and I, uh, so we won't fall into the same mess. Men asked me one time years ago, I was having lunch with him, and uh, he, he asked me this question. He says, as a pastor <coughs> and as a Christian, he says, be honest now. He says, it's just you and me talking. <coughs> he says, what would you classify as your greatest strength and what would you classify as your greatest weakness? And I told him, and I, I and you know, and it's, it's such a true thing. And I, I told him, uh, I have the same issues as anybody else. My human nature is just as bad as your human nature. And I would be susceptible to any and all sin and any and all lifestyles that come along with that if I chose and did not stay in that book. And that's the truth. We think that preachers, you know, are made of cast iron. That's not true. We think that I don't identify with where you're at because I'm who I am and you who you are. Let me tell you something, kid. I got the same struggles in my flesh as you got in yours. I got the same problems and the same issues that you deal with. Maybe not on the same levels, but certainly human nature is the same across the board. And if I didn't stay in that book, if I didn't choose to make that book the book of my life and stay in it and stay with it, you know what? I'm susceptible to any sin anybody, other human being is on planet Earth. There's no iron men in Christianity. There's just men and women who are smart enough or dumb enough, however you want to put it, to learn by their own mistakes and then in time get into that Bible and learn from the mistakes of others and actually apply that to your life. And I'm going to show you this morning what I mean today and what Paul's trying to talk to them about in chapter 10. I'm going to give you a few thumbnail pictures, just the tip of the iceberg of, of really what's in that Bible. Time would not even begin to permit us to give you even one-tenth of the scenarios found in the Bible. I, I've chosen a very easy subject, one I think that we can all identify with, one I think is very important, and it's simply based around the Christian life, the Christian walk, the Christian relationship with God, the Christian's faith in God, the Christian's courage to believe the Word of God and to live for God today. 
And even in this, it's just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. Now, I don't know if you picked it up yet or not, but the overall greatest example of we have of our life and our struggles and by the mistakes that were made is the one that Paul uses, the nation of Israel. I think, hands down, the nation of Israel is the greatest picture and the greatest parallel of the struggles that you and I go through. I think the nation of Israel and every aspect of it, I think that it pictures and shows you and me where, uh, what we need to be and what we need to do. Do you ever notice that, that you are God's son? The Bible says if you got saved, you're God's child. And yet, uh, God's son, yet the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, that Israel was God's son. You see, you're God's son as an individual. But in the Old Testament, God looked at the nation of Israel as a corporate nation and looked at them as his son. You realize that when you got saved, you got saved by the blood of Christ. You realize that when Israel got their calling out from the Egypt, they got it by the blood of a lamb, a sinless lamb without spot. It's a picture of Christ. Their baptism that Paul talked about here is a picture of the fact that after you got saved, you got baptized. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 20, God gives them the Word of God just like He gave you the Word of God. You'll find in Exodus chapter 13 that God sanctified them just like He set you apart. You'll find in Exodus chapter 16, He gave them the supernatural food. And in chapter 17, He gave them the supernatural water in the wilderness sin. You'll find in chapter 17, He taught them how to pray. Almost every aspect of the Christian life is laid out. You realize that God had a plan for the nation of Israel? And do you realize that God has a plan for you today if you're saved? You realize that God saved you for a purpose just like He called the nation of Israel out of Egypt for a purpose? You think God just said, well, I'll just get them out and just let them wander for a while. They're nice, a bunch of people. No. God had a plan for them, and when God brought them out of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, it's a picture of God setting you free by the blood of Christ, and God has a plan for you just like He had a plan for them. You know what the parallel is? They never fulfilled that plan, and neither do most of God's people today. You know why? Because of the mistakes. That's why Paul lets us see, and he tells that church at Corinth, look back at what they did. Learn from the examples and the examples and take the admonition lest you fall into the same problems. That's all. Paul uses them as a prime example in chapter 10 and they are absolutely the best example that you'll ever find. Did you ever notice, just in a quick overview here, four major issues that Israel had that was their tragedy of tragedies that led to them never accomplishing what God wanted them to accomplish. They never did. Four basic things, and my friend, they are the four basic things that will mess you up and mess me up. The first thing is they always forgot what God had just done for them. Psalm 77, verse 10. And I said, this is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. You know what our biggest problem is? It was their biggest problem and their first problem. They forgot what God did for them. You know what your problem is? You've forgotten what God has done for you. You've had situations in your family where your mother or your father was lost. And, uh, and you know, God came in and, and, and saved them before they died and split hell wide open. Many of those things happened uh, uh, before you knew me. Many of them happened after you knew me. But God's hand came in. 
And God, you, 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 you were so worried about your parents or you were so worried about your brother and your sister or your grandmother or whatever the case. And you were so worried that you wanted them to be saved. God come down and miraculously saved them. Sometimes it was on the deathbed in the hospital. Sometimes it was in a retirement home. Sometimes it was there. And, you, and now here you are today. What? Three, four, five, six, seven years later? Back out in the world, forgot about that, lost all interest in that. Now you're on to your next great conquest. You're living your life just like you did. You know what happened? We forget what God did for us. I've told you this before. You know the big difference between me and a lot of you? This is not true of probably most of you, but it's obviously true of some of you. And maybe if you're not here and here today and you're hearing the sound of my voice, maybe it's true of you. You know the biggest fundamental difference between me and you? You got over the day God saved you. I just never got over it. I never forgot what he did for me. Now, I'm not telling you I'm perfect. I'm far from perfect. You'd follow me around all day. You'd probably never come back to church. But I'll tell you one thing I problem I don't have, and that is forgetting what he did for me. I can go back in my life, and I got it recorded in my Bible, recorded in books that I keep, and my journals and things like that, of everything that God did in my life. I look back, and there's never going to be a hell's chance on planet Earth that I'm ever going to forget what God did for me. I may go out and, and lose my mind and become a drunk. I may squander down the streets of Kansas City puking in the alleys. But when you pick me up, I will wipe the slobber off my face and then tell you what God did for me. Amen. And then confess how I failed him. That's the only difference. God's people get mad at God, mad at church, mad at people, mad at preachers, simply because they forget what God did for them. Look what he said there. He says, I will remember. I will remember the years. Some of you forgot how bad it was before you got saved. Some of you have forgotten what destitute situations you were in before you got saved. You for simply let it slide. You got everything now. You're happy now. You got the desires of your heart. And you slip into that mode that you forget how it was in the filth and the godliness of this old world. Like Psalm chapter 40 said, I waited patiently on the Lord, and I cried unto him, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of, a, out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten that. He says, I will remember the years. Verse 11 says, I will remember the works. You forgot the day God saved you when he did that work in your life. When he brought you out of the darkness into the light. When he made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Why in the world? My God, why in the world would you go back to the filth and the slop of the world in any form or fashion if you did not forget that? Amen. You tell me. You enlighten me. And then he says, I remember the works of the Lord. Sure, I remember the wonders of old. You know what that is? You forget how God got you where you're at today. Some of the things that you guys and gals have been through in life, it's, it's a, only a miracle that you're here today. It's only the, uh, the wonder that God did that nobody can explain. Situations that are unexplainable. Circumstances that you just shake your head at and say, I don't understand how that happened. And the only answer is God did a wondrous thing in your life that gets you where you're at right now. And what? You're going to forget it? Yes, you are. Yes, you will. 
And the second thing, they would not stay within the law, the word of God that God gave them. Interesting thing in the Bible, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but there's an interesting thing in the word of God. And that interesting thing is you ought to go back to Joshua chapter 24. And you ought to see Joshua giving them the admonition back there. Oh boy, you better stay with that book. And then you go to the next book, which is Judges chapter 1, and you see another great admonition for them to stay in the book, the Word of God. And you know what? They never did. They never did. Because they forgot what God did for them, because they forgot the day God brought them out of Egypt. Do you ever notice how God in Psalms chapter 78, when he wants to bring them to reality before he clobbers them, he takes them back in Psalm 78 and shows them all the things that he did for them that they had forgotten. Then the third thing. The third thing that messed them up was the friends that they kept company with. Numbers chapter 4, excuse me, Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. And the mixed multitude was among them, fell a lusting after the children of Israel, also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? It's always been amazing to me that the mixed multitude was always concerned about flesh. Do you know why that is? Because they live in the flesh. Everything about them is fleshly. We remember the fish, which we did in Egypt, freely, the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Oh, they've forgotten here, because here they're saying they used to have those things freely. You were a slave back then. But now our soul is dried away. Oh, yes, it is. Terrible thing. Poor baby. There is nothing at all beside this manna. That manna is a type of the Word of God. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of a Christian who used to go to church and love the Bible, love the things of God, love the Word of God, and then something happened. And then they wind up six months later, a year later, two years later, and they complain about church, they complain about everything in the church, and they look at the Bible and they say, oh man, I'm not going to Bible study tonight. It's the same old stuff over and over again. Yeah, you're right, and you still haven't learned it. They had a mixed multitude. Oh, all they got to eat is that old, boring, dry Bible. Well, there was a time in your life when the Bible was premier with you. What happened? Oh, I know it's my fault. I should have guessed that right out of the chute. And I'm telling you what, every time they turn around, they had nagging on them, the mixed multitude, sowing doubt, putting thoughts in their mind. To pull them away from God. You know why? Because misery loves company. That's why. And they never had what it took to take the mixed multitude, square off some time on a football field, put them about the 30-yard line, back up and kick them through the goalpost of life. And it was their downfall. And it will be your downfall. Things never change. The fourth thing is they would never keep focus on what they had, but always were drawn away to focus on what they didn't have. Out of sight, out of mind. Moses goes up in Exodus chapter 32. He stays a little longer than planned up there with God, 40 days. 
The children of Israel get nervous. Children of Israel out of sight, out of mind. They never focused on the promises of God. They never focused on what they were going to get, what God was going to do for them. They only focused on what they didn't have, and so they moved on with that, and they got a golden altar calf, and they built that thing, and they're all dancing around there having a great time. That's God's people. Israel never got over their issues, and it destroyed them in time. They never really enjoy the full benefit of the promised land. You ever stop and think about this? I think this is the tragedy of tragedies. 5,000 years, 5,000 years of Jewish history. And out of 5,000 years of Jewish history, they only have 40 years by which they enjoy the blessings that God had for them. 40 years out of 5,000 thousand years the only thing more tragic than that is God's people's lives you know what some of you live 80 90 years and never have a minute of it and you're going to heaven I'm talking to you this morning hope you brought your umbrella because there's going to be a lot of reality raining on you today now let's look at another aspect of the Old Testament examples and examples let's let's carry this thing a little bit farther. We've seen the nation of Israel. Like I said, I want to give you a thumb step today. We'll do this quickly. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to walk and a work and a worship and a relationship with God? One that you walk by faith and not by sight? Do you desire a ministry that is a work of God and not a work for God? Do you want a relationship with His Word? Courage to stand? Courage to, to suffer and to witness for Him? Well, once you get past the nation of Israel, and this is just, I'm going to pick these things out of here because they're, they're, they're fast, they're quick, and it'll give you a glimpse of, uh, but boy, we could spend the next 40 years of our life here. There are seven men in the Old Testament who by their examples and their examples teach us all. They teach us these things by what they do right and also by what they do wrong. They're just tip of the iceberg. There's tens of thousands of them in the Bible. The Bible is in, it has an example of good men. Bible has an example of bad men. Bible has an example of good women, has examples of bad women. You know, now, in all of that, we find that, and it's true of life, many times good people do dumb things. Many times good people do bad things. But you don't very find very often bad people doing good things. But we learn from that. We learn from that. Now, the first man that we're going to look at here, and we're just going to, like I said, briefly come through this. I could, take, I could take 10 weeks on each one of these guys, and you ought to do that at some point in your life. You ought to get a handle on it. <clears throat> but the first man I want to look at is the man Noah. Now, if you're wondering where Noah is found out in your Bible, he'll primarily found in Genesis chapter 6. I'll make it easy for you. Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 9. This is the life of Noah. You'll find he mentioned again in Hebrews 11, chapter 7, and over there in 2 Peter, chapter uh, 2, verse 5, and maybe a few other places in the Bible. But when we look at Noah, you know what we see? You know what we learn by contrast from Noah? You know what we learn by example and example of Noah? We learn from him, if we make the parallels, how to be a witness in this world. Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of God's righteousness. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that he moved with fear and built an ark to the saving of his household. 
And those two concepts are great. Because it shows you and I, and of course you don't think about the Bible at all, you know that Matthew chapter 24 verse 39 says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. You and I are living again in the days of Noah. History always repeats itself. And now we find ourselves uh, uh, not in the same kind of time period without learning, the, learning, the, learning from his mistakes or learning what he did right, learning from the mistakes of the people in that time, and, uh, and, and therefore we, we never get any admonition about it. The first thing it says is he built, a, he built an ark, and he prepared an ark, the saving of his household. You know what that tells me? The first thing he was concerned about was his family. The first thing he was concerned about is all my kids saved. The first thing he did, and he moved with fear, and I know he was a preacher of righteousness, and I know he preached the world, but before he ever got to the world, you know what he did? He built an ark. Listen to me. He built an ark. He prepared an ark to what? The saving of his household. He wasn't guaranteed that anybody else was going to get in that ark. And by the way, nobody else did. But he made sure his family got in. What are you doing? What are you doing? And that's not even my message. I just threw that in there when I saw that. I'll tell you what he is to me. He's the only man in the Bible to stand alone against what? Five or six billion people? A conservative estimate of life on planet Earth when you have the, uh, at the time of Noah, of the population, is about five to six billion people. Certainly what it is today, if not more, when you consider all the factors. And yet, he's a, he's a great character study on a man who basically stood alone. There's no mention of his wife, no mention of his boys, no mention of their f- wives, anybody taking a stand for God in this world other than him. One man against six billion people one man who took a stand, one man who looked at the world and took a stand for God with that world when he was hated by the world, made fun of by the world, and he was ridiculed by the world, and you know what? It never fazed him one bit because he had seen, he had heard, God told him what to do, and God told him what was coming. Now, that's a great model for you and for me. Yes, he made his mistakes. Yes, he had his issues. But when you learn his life, you see how that thing's a picture of what you and I ought to do. You know, we get the idea sometimes that in ministry, I don't think we form the right attitude. Nobody likes to be alone. Nobody likes to stand alone. It's the hardest thing in the world when you've got 50 people out there thinking one way and you've got to take the stand uh, on uh, opposite of those 50 people. But you know what? If it's God's stand, take that stand. But you see, we're weak people today. We don't, have any, we don't have any steel in our legs today. We don't stand against opposition today. We bend to it. And because we bend to it, that's why we have the problems we have. That's why men don't make it in the ministry. Or if they do make it in the ministry, it's a wishy-washy, amalgamated mess. Let me tell you something. The ministry, if you can't understand these two next concepts, don't get in it. The ministry is not a popularity contest. You're not a pastor so you can win friends and influence enemies. You're not, you're, you're not in the ministry for that. You're in the ministry to preach the truth. And a lot of people are not going to like the truth. And a lot of people are going to come after you because you preach the truth. And a lot of people are going to hate you because you preach the truth. They're going to malign you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to assassinate your character. You know what? So what? Man, if that gold boy can stand uh, uh, up against one guy, up against five or six billion people, and he didn't stand for just, he stood for 120 years. He took it. He took it.
He preached God's coming judgment to a world that taught that God is love. If you want to know what that world was like, just look around you. And he stood by himself. You know what he formed? He formed the idea, if you're going to go into the ministry, it's nice to have all of you folks here today. And I love you. Thank you for being here. And you, most of you, if I know you, you're my friends. And, and we serve together. We serve God together. But let me just tell you something. Please don't take this the wrong way. In the back of my mind, I know if push come to shove, I'd probably be by myself. And that's probably not true, but I can't afford, I can't allow myself not to think that's not true. Because I know there may come a time when this thing goes down that, let me tell you something, if, the, if, the, if, the, if it hit the fan this morning, this thing would be cut in half. And as the persecution went on and things got tough, you know what? You'd find a nicer, easier thing to do. And at the end of the day, I'm fully prepared to stand by myself if that's what it takes. I'm fully prepared to stand by myself if nobody else stands with me. It ain't about popularity. It ain't about anything other than that's what God has called me to do. And I learned that from men like Noah. Great character study. Then the next one is Moses. Now you'll find Moses, folks, probably more written about Moses than any man in the Bible. You'll find him in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, throughout it. There's more good stuff on Moses than you'll ever find. I'll tell you what. It's just incredible. And you know what Moses does for us? Moses teaches us how to be the friend of God. And you know what? Moses didn't start out being God's friend. That's what I like about Moses. Moses didn't start out being God's friend. Moses started out timid. He was afraid. He didn't talk very well. He couldn't talk, couldn't speak. I don't know what his speech problem was, but he, he just didn't have a, a good self-image of himself. And uh, there's more information on the Bible and the life of Moses than any other man. And uh, uh, if you want to be God's friend, uh, then you study Moses' life. You realize the, the first some 80 years of his life, he was a washout. He had to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert after he spent, what, 40 years down in Egypt. He was raised as an Egyptian and he was called by God and to lead God's people. You know what? That's what God did with you. You were born an Egyptian. You were born into this world. And then God brought you out of this world and called you and saved you to lead his people. You want to learn how to be God's friend? No better example. No better example of a real relationship with God the way God wants it to be than Moses. We see his failures. We see his triumphs. We see a timid man in Exodus chapter 4, 5, and 6. We see God's man by the time you get out of Egypt and into the Exodus of Deuteronomy. We see him standing up not only to the enemies of God, but the people of God. Moses not only had to contend with the world out there that hated God, he had to contend with a mixed multitude in the nation of Israel, always forgetting what God did. And boy, there lies some great study material for you. It's interesting, in the beginning, Aaron spoke for Moses, but in the end, Moses spoke for God. There's a process there. Moses speaks in the place of God, in God's place. You know why? Because he knew God so well, he knew exactly what God would say and what God would do. That's the place you ought to get to in life. That's called speaking with authority. That's not your own authority. That's the authority of the Word of God. And boy, when you come through him's life, the great talks they have, the great arguments they have. Boy, you want to see a real plain relationship with God where a man just gets with God, it's Moses. 
Boy, he argues with God sometimes, and I mean, it's incredible. And then God argues with him sometimes. It's exactly what it means in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, where it simply says that Moses speaketh to God face to face like a man speaketh with his friend. Boy, that's, that, there's no truer statement in the Bible. I remember one time that Moses is so fed up with, with all of God's people and their godliness and all the stupid stuff they're doing. He comes into that tent, throws that tent flap. God says, what's going on with you? And he just cusses up a storm and he tells God he had to kill these blankety-blank people and wipe out every one of them. God just lets him go on for a while. And, and then after he steams it off for a while, God says, now Moses, come on. You know they're goofy people. You know they got their problems. But you know that uh, bottom line is they're, my, my son's going to come through them. And I know you got a tough job. And Moses says, yeah, I know, you're right. But sometimes it drives me nuts. And he said, well, you know what, Moses? I picked you because I knew you could handle it. You know what? Yes, they're goofy. Yes, they're going to drive you nuts. Yes, you want to kill them tomorrow. But you know what? It's okay. Moses says, gee, God, thanks a lot, man. No problem, Moses. Me and you are buds. Good deal. Okay. Well, I'm good better now, Lord. I can go out and handle it. You go out there and handle it. Two weeks later, God comes in the tent, throws the flap. <laughs> Moses says, hi, God, what's going on with you? And he says, oh, I'm going to kill them people. <laughs> he says, I'm going to wipe them out. He says, I'm just going to kill them. I'm going to strip their skin off. I'm going to boil them in oil. I'm going to cut their heads off, put them on stakes. I'm going to just open up the whole earth, open up and swallow up. What I ever thought of that I could trust these people. I called them. I want them to do this. I've done everything for them. I've given them everything. They have not one thing they haven't needed that I haven't given them. Do you see what they did? They got some graven image out there. They are dancing around that thing naked. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to toast their little hineys till they come to just get that thing straight. I'm going to kill them all. Moses says, now come on, Lord. You know better than that. You ain't going to do that. Come on. Here, sit down. Chill out for a little bit. Now you know that they're goofy people. Well, it was just two weeks ago. You told me how goofy they were. Yeah, I know that was then. I want to, they're goofy now for me. I want to kill them. No, nah, that ain't going to work. Stop and think about this, Lord. What are you going to do? When you go out and wipe them, what are all the other nations going to say? You know, we came through the land last week, and the, the Hittites were out there. And when I went up to that King Hittite guy, and I told him, we're the nation of Israel. We'd like to pass through your land, get a little water. You know what he did? He said, help yourself. He says, anything you need, my people will get it for you. You just help yourself. You come on through that land. And I said, well, thank you very much. He said, nope, don't thank me. He said, you know what? We've heard what your God did to the other nations that didn't let you come through. You come on through. He said, what are they going to say? They're going to say that you started this thing and couldn't finish it. God says, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> okay, Moses, thanks a lot. I needed that. I feel better now. Now, some of you don't even get that. Some of you can't conceive of a man talking to God that way. You know what? I feel sorry for you. You don't have any relationship with God. You know, you can always talk about where a man's at by how he prays. You get somebody up there to pray, and they start talking about the God of the flowers, the mountains, and, you know, God, take us take us ugly ducklings and make us swans. You know, you'll give me a break. You know what a real man who's got a real relationship with God will talk about? He'll just get right down there where it's at. I, I went a man to Christ one time years ago and when I led him to the Lord and he prayed that he wanted to pray his own sinner's prayer and when I led him to, led him to the Lord, he about knocked me off my socks. When he started to pray, he used every cuss word in the book. You know, the average preacher would look at that and he'd stop him and say, oh, you can't talk like that. You know, you know what? That's the way God wants you to talk to him. He wants you to talk to him the way you are in your heart right then. This guy said, oh, Lord, you know I'm a goddamn sinner. 
My daughter did the thing. Time out here. Whoa, let's back up. That's, that's, not, that's not what made me want to do that thing there. But then you know what I thought? That's exactly what he was. He got saved. He got saved. You see, that's, that's the kind of relationship God wants to have. That's what he had with Moses. They had great talks, great arguments. Moses had great fears. But Moses took great steps and became a great tool in God's hands. God said to him one time when Moses was alibying around and, and didn't want didn't to be able to do things, and God says to him, Moses, what do you got in your hand? Moses just said, I don't know how I'm going to do all these things. He says, what do you got in your hand? He says, well, I got a rod. God said, that's just what we'll start with. And you know what? All through the early part of Exodus when he did all the great miracles, you know what he used? The rod that Moses had. You know what God wants you to do? He just wants you to come to him and say, God, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. And God will say to you, well, what do you got in your hand, Bob? What do you got in your hand, Tom? What do you got in your hand, Ralph? What do you got in your hand, Bill? What do you got in your hand, Mary? What do you got in your hand, Sue? You'll say, well, I got this. And God said, we'll just start using that. You get the idea God wants you to be, God wants you to be able to do something for him. God doesn't want you to be able. He just wants you to be willing. If you're willing, God will be able then we have Abraham. Now you're going to find Abraham, folks, in Genesis chapter 11 all the way up to Genesis chapter 25. He's also, by the way, called the friend of God in Isaiah 41.8. And you'll find him also in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and other key places. Now what does Abraham teach us by his life? And oh, what a life this is. He teaches us how to walk by faith and not by sight. The life of Abraham is one of the greatest studies in the Bible. It's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's the first man in the Bible where God changes his name from Abram, which means high father, to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. You know what it means when you find God changing a man's name in the Bible? It's a very spiritual significance. It means that that guy has come to the point in his life now that he's no longer the way that he was, and from that point on, he's going to do whatever God wants him to do. Yet a study when God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Yet a study when he takes uh, uh, Saul and changes his name to Paul. You had a study through the Bible where he takes Sarah and calls her, uh, or Sarai, and calls her Sarah. You had to look when the places in the Bible when God changes somebody's name. Believe it or not, I've seen that same thing in some of your lives. You know what it means in the Bible when God changes your name? It means that you ain't going back to the world anymore. It means you finally got to that point. I'm, you're not perfect. You're going to have mistakes. Every one of these guys made mistakes after God changed their name. But one thing was sure, they ain't going back to the world anymore. And when you get to that point in your life and you say, that's it, I'm here and I'm never going back. I may struggle tomorrow, I may do some dumb things down the line, but I'll tell you one thing, I'm not going back to that world system and I'm going to build my relationship with God. When you get to that point in your life, God changes your name. Why well, Abram started out in Genesis chapter 12 when he had his wife down in Egypt, when Pharaoh saw how beautiful she was, he had to lie and he said, she's my sister. Couldn't even trust God for that. Then you get to Genesis chapter 22, somewhat 35, 40 years later in his life, and he's down there, and now he's willing to offer up Isaac, his own son, on the altar, if that's what God wants. You know what happened between point A and point B? He grew. He learned to walk by faith and not by sight. But boy, what a process. He made some mistakes. He made some mistakes. Took him 99 years to figure it out. You see, that's why in the ministry you've got to have patience and you've got to have long-suffering. 
I'd like you all to be where I want you to be, but that ain't me. That ain't a reality. You are where you're at. I'll take you where you're at as long as you keep growing. I've had people all my life in the, in, that I've worked with in the ministry that they took four steps forward and three steps back. I don't care. I don't care at all as long as you keep making progress, as long as you keep wanting to do what's right, as long as you keep picking it up and keep putting them down and keep moving forward. That's all I can ask for you. The rest will take care of itself. His life as an example and a sample of how uh, to learn to trust God and whatever he says, whatever he wants you to do is absolutely incredible. And he's a great study. Then we have Samuel. And Samuel's another favorite of mine, and you're going to find Samuel. He's written about in, uh, he writes uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and he's in predominantly the book of 1 Samuel. What will Samuel do for us? Samuel, through his life of examples and examples, he'll show you how to build a work of God. He'll show you the aspect of ministry, how to get into ministry. He's the first real prophet that Israel ever has, and he's the last of the judges. You want in the ministry? Study this young man. Study his call. Study the process that God used for him to become a great prophet of, of God's people. And you know what? In a lot of ways, you and I today as New Testament Christians, that's what we are. We're prophets. We're New Testament prophets. Except you don't get a vision from God. The prophecy you need to tell is already in a book. Back in the Old Testament, they didn't have the completed Bible. So God would come down and tell a prophet what he needed to say. He'd go out and tell the people what God wanted him to say. All right? We don't have that issue today. You've got the written revelation of God in your hand. You've got a more sure word of prophecy. You've got everything you need, and everything that God told you is in that book. You need nothing from the outside. No hocus-pocus experiences, no visions, no nothing, all that stuff. You've got everything you need in that book. And you take that book, and you go to a people, and you be God's prophet, men and women. And that's what you do. That's exactly what you do. And, uh, you know, you're going to find that uh, uh, every issue a young man or a young woman faces in God calling them uh, to do a work for him is found uh, in his life. His struggle with God, his call into the ministry, the God calling and dealing in his life. And there's a great parallel here that I look that why, and I ask myself many times, why some people make it and some people don't. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing in my business, you don't want everybody to make it. And I would be less than who I needed to be if I didn't analyze why people don't make it. I mean, uh, I mean, my goodness, we got the Word of God, we got everything you want, you got the Holy Spirit of God laid inside you, living inside you, sealed inside you, you got everything you need, you got a Bible. Why don't you make it? Why don't God's people make it? And Samuel answers that question. It's, and it's the key, really. It's in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And he says this, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And he did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You see, there's the key. There's what separates you from the person sitting next to you or the person in front of you behind you. There's why some will make it and some won't make it. Samuel determined in his heart that when he heard what God said, he would let none of those words fall to the ground. You don't even know what that means, do you? 
It means every time you come to Thursday night. It means every time you come to Sunday morning. When something is laid out that is to your benefit, you get it. That means you've got to get the tape and work it out because you couldn't get down fast enough. That's what you do. But you let none of the Word of God. You stop and think of everything that we said today up to this point and everything that we laid out. If you could just get that and you put that into your life, how it would work and change who you are. But you know what? Most of you will not do it. You know why? Because you're in a lifestyle of letting God's words fall to the ground. You just get a little bit here and a little bit there. David's the next one. Now David's written about in 1 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, and the book of 1 Chronicles. Those are three very important books. 1 Samuel is the beginning years of David. 2 Samuel is the years of David once he becomes king, and it shows you all of his problems. Ah, here's the contrast. And then second, uh, First Chronicles shows David without any sin because he's a type of Christ. And therefore that forms the great contrast. Now what's David do for us? David shows us how to worship God through a relationship with the Word of God. There is no worship of God without knowing and loving and having the Word of God. John chapter 4 verse 22 says, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Two aspects. The spirit there is a small s. It's man's spirit. The truth there is the Word of God. In other words, it's your spirit lined up to the truth of God's Word that produces worship. And worship is not a ceremony. Worship is not a service. Worship is not anything. Worship is a state of attitude of heart that you ought to live in 24 days, 24 hours, 7 days a week. It's that simple. David gets the sure mercies of David, a picture of the New Testament Christian eternal security. You see, the heart of God is the Word of God. And uh, there's many commentaries on the life of David. Uh, Arthur W. Pink has a great commentary on him. Uh, but the greatest commentary on his life was not written by man, but it was written by God. God said in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, He said, And when he had removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony. This is God's testimony about David now. And he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. That was God's commentary on David, a man after my own heart. He said in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and turned not aside from my, anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, only save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David is the standard. When you get over there into Kings and Chronicles, he's the standard by which all the kings are judged by. He's an incredible study. You want to learn how to have a relationship with God? Then study Psalms. Study the Psalms of David. Psalms, Psalms 119, 176 verses, all dealing, with, all dealing with David's relationship with the Word of God. Then the next man is Daniel. And Daniel's a great study. And uh, he, uh, he's taken captive in, uh, in the Nebuchadnezzar's seas of 606, the first time he comes down. Uh, you know what, David or, or uh, Daniel could have rationalized his situation. I mean, he was taken uh, without anything he could do about it. He could have just blended in and blamed God and everybody else, but he didn't. He didn't. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw, see him refuse to become a child of Babylon. He will not become one with the world because the Bible says he's of the king's seed. He's in the line of Christ. In chapter 3, we see that him and the three Hebrew children are thrown into the fiery furnace, aren't they? They're thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't uh, do what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do. 
And that fiery furnace is a picture of, of what you're going to get thrown into uh, as a Christian. When you do what God wants you to do and you don't do what the world wants you to do, and a lot of times even what God's people want you to do, you know what they're going to do to you? They're going to throw you into the fiery furnace and they're going to turn the heat up. But there's an old song that is sang, and it's a, based on this story, and the Stadler brothers made it famous, and it was the old song, they didn't, they didn't bend, they didn't bow, they didn't burn. And boy, that is so true. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't bend into Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't bow down to him, and because of that, they didn't burn. You know why they didn't burn? Because when old Nebuchadnezzar looked in there, and he saw those three guys that he threw in there, he said, there's a fourth man in the fire. I thought we threw three in. Who's that fourth guy? Somebody looked in and said, ooh, who that is? That's the son of God. You see, every time the world or Christianity wants to throw you into the fiery furnace, the Lord will be there with you. Then in chapter four, uh, chapter 6, the great story of Daniel and the lion's den. And there's uh, a case where uh, because of that God's got his hand in his life, the jealousy persists among all the other people that are around him. So they make up a story and they assassinate his character and they lie about him, all to get him thrown in the, in the lion's den. And uh, the king falls for it. And the king falls for it, and, and finally they take Daniel and they put him down in that lion's den. And that's a great picture. That's a great picture. If they can't get you burned up in a fire, then they'll throw you in the lion's den. And the Bible says that your devil, the devil, your adversary, going about as a roaring lion seeking who may devour. And that's the picture there. They can't burn you up, then they'll throw you in the lion's den and let the devil get to you. But you know what I've learned from that great story? You learn, from, you learn from guys' mistakes. You learn from what they do, right? And you look at these things, and these are parallels. If you take a stand for God to this world, they'll throw you into the fiery furnace, but God will be with you. They look in that fire, they'll see him standing right there with you. You say, could you close the door? There's a draft in here. It's a little cool. But when they throw in the lion's den, let me tell you something. I heard an old preacher tell me this years and years and years ago, and I never forgot it. He said, it's okay for the world and Christian to throw you in the lion's den, as long as the lion of the tribe of Judah goes in there with you. He's the head lion. Then we have Job. You'll sustain yourself with these examples and examples when it becomes your day. When it becomes your day in the lion's den and becomes your day in the fiery furnace. Or when it becomes your day that you lose everything like our next guy, our last guy, Job does. And Job teaches us how to suffer for God. James chapter 5 verse 11 talks about the patience of Job. There's a great truth found in the book of Job and we don't have time to explore it all. You've heard me talk about it many, many times and that is simply God is enough. Job didn't have anything that you and I have got. He loses everything. It's always been amazing to me that he loses what we'll never lose but he maintains his integrity because, and he doesn't have anything that you and I have. Yet you and I give it up all the time. Job has no Bible. Job has no indwelling Holy Spirit. Job, Job has no pastor. Job has no church. Job has no Christian radio. He has no Christian books. He doesn't have any Christian friend, the free friends he's had with friends like that who need enemies. And the help meet that God gave him is more of a help mess than a help meet. She ain't any good. The best advice she'd come up with, curse God and die. Should throw her in a lion's den. <coughs> Wrong story, excuse me. No, the great truth of this book is, you know what? God is enough. I look at you and I look at me and how frail we are and how we fold up like a broken accordion when you've got a Bible. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. 
you got a church, you got a pastor, you got Christian friends. Most of you have a good godly spouse. Most of you have a, a good relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. You know a little bit about your Bible. You have the right Bible. You have everything, where place you can get every answer you want to get about anything. What is the excuse for your failure? There is no excuse other than the fact you don't want to. You see, Job teaches us how to suffer through the examples and his examples. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Second Timothy 3, 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Philippians 3.20 says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. Now there it is right there. There's why, the reason why we don't really do what we want to do. We want the power of God. We want the ministry of God. We just don't want the sufferings of God. That's where we're at. Yet Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 and 13 said, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. That means he was crucified outside the city. Then he says this, verse 13, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. You see, you're supposed to pay the price right now. If there's not some suffering you're going through for Christ's cause, somebody else to get you, somebody hates you, somebody slandering you, if you get along with everybody nicey-nicey and may those people hate God, hate the Word of God, hate church, hate all the things going with it, you better get alone and take a good dark look at yourself. We just don't want to suffer. Yet the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You see, these are the things that God gave them. These are the things that the church of Corinth had that Paul's trying to get them to see that they would not learn. And these are the same things today I bring you that if you want the victory in Jesus, this is how you get it. You learn from others' mistakes. The church, church of Corinth never learned these things. I could take you this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. And in chapter 11, it gives you what? 17 men and women. In chapter 12 is the great chapter on the, the God's people in perseverance, holding on, keeping on. Don't fade in your mind. You know what he uses for the example and in the sample of them? The great people in chapter 11 that take a stand. 17 people. And it's a great chapter. I mean, we talk about people who subdued kingdoms, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness was made strong, uh, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Cruel mockering, scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, stone, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskin, in desert and in mountains, dens and caves. And yet the Bible says in the last verse 39 that they obtained a better report. And you see those things are in there that we might learn. If you lose a loved one, let me tell you something. Go back there and find the women who received their dead and reeled and looked forward a resurrection. You're going through somebody being on you and, and, and making problems for you? Go back and study the cruel mockerings or the scourgings. Somebody out to get you and trying to hurt you? Study the bonds and imprisonment, slain with a sword, tempted, 
I mean, it's all right there. These lives are the lives of people who went through the things Many times because they did things wrong and these were the consequences. Many times because they just suffered righteously. But learn them. Learn them. And then apply them to your own life. That when you go out tomorrow, you don't forget what God's done for you. You don't make the same mistakes that so many people may stay in the Bible. This is what the church of Corinth could not get through. And this is why they were a church full of spiritual babies. This is why if this church is ever going to be all that God wants it to be, it's going to take men and women who not only learn from their own mistakes and correct them, bring them back in line with the Bible, but will learn from the mistakes in the Bible, the examples and the examples. Every head bowed. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you today. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the things in this book that give us exactly what we know.